3: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com sofa today for details. <laughs> This is the Starship Sofa, show number 88. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 88. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Nice show in store for you this day. Give you a little heads up what's happening today. We have the editorial all about last week's Sofa Notes and the live show. The live show that didn't come about. Find out what happened on the Sofa Notes editorial. Good poem by Samantha Henderson. We have flash fiction by Mike Allen. Fact article of the day comes from Rod Barnett with his film talk. Then round things off, the main fiction is story by Jeff Carlson and a story with a great title: "Gunfight at the Sugarloaf Pet Food and Taxidermy." There you go. I hope that has pipped your interest. So do stick around and enjoy the show. <laughs> So jumping straight in with the editorial by my good self, Mr. Tony C. Smith. The live edition of the Sofa Notes didn't come about. Well, actually, we're all there. Everyone was primed and ready to roll, video cameras rolling. And I had this kind of sneaking feeling, you know, something might go wrong. And to be, to start off, we were having trouble with Damien. Damien G. Walter was one of our guests on there, as well as... Jeremy Talbot and our good friend on Fiction Crawler here, Mr. Matthew Sambone Smith, and would I'd had a little kind of issues with Damien and his kind of his flash settings the night before, we're trying to mess on with, and he said he'd reinstall them, and it came to the kind of the day, and we're still having trouble with Damien, and we were going to go ahead, we're really not having Damien's picture on or Damien's video, just really having Damien's audio, you know, but that would mean everyone watching it wouldn't get to hear Damien, you know, it was just this quiet silence and we're all like nodding, you know, at Damien's words. But so we kinda of started like that and the show got off. And we had a few kinda of, I think it was about ten, including the three guests, you know, like on the, the, the um the show or on the kind in the chat room. It became apparent within like a couple of minutes really that the bandwidth issues are just not up to standard for us, you know, to do this. It just seemed very slow and the last time I kind of started going down this way never had that issue oh we didn't get that stage I remember me and Fred trying to do it and there was all these kind of echo feedbacks and everything like that and you know I've got to take my hat off to Dylan who's on the forums as furry potato and Kate who kind of organizes most of my life now for Starships Over. you know we've kind of tested and tested it and it just you know it, it kind of seemed to work but you know, I was always thought, you know, like bandwidth, because my bandwidth is shocking where I live. You know, sometimes it's like six megabytes, sometimes it's two, you know, depending on kind of the, the busy times. And like I say, it became apparent straight away that I was freezing and other people were freezing and then my sound was going down. And, you know, and that's all we can put it down to. It was just the, the, the bandwidth wasn't everything else was in place. You know what I mean? The function works. Just it doesn't work, you know. In the England, especially, it's not. Uh, we haven't got that kind of decent bandwidth now, at the moment. You know, f- fingers crossed we will be back. But it was a good show. Do you know what I mean? You can kind of listen to the audio version of it over at thesofanoats dot com, or just you know subscribe in iTunes. Like I say, a good show. But you know, f- for now, the the video has been taken off. Do you know what I mean? and i've took the tab off i got gareth to take the tab off the website as well and bless him, gareth put all that time and effort in to kind of make it so with the live tab so you could go on that page on the starship sofas page and see where but it just didn't work but that's not to stop you going over and having to listen to, you know, that show, a great show. And we debated what was actually interesting. I was dying to find out, and it was like an interesting topic to cover, was, you know, like forced sexual acts as like a tool in science fiction stories. Is It's just a tool. And especially after I played last week's short story, you know, the one with the kind of the Adam Troy Castro in where there was that kind of horrific, brutal rape scene in there. It was nice to kind of get that out in the open and talk about, you know, is it just like, was it not just Adam Troy Castro using that as a tool, but does most people use it as a tool, or was it necessary in that story? So there's some quite nice debates about that over on the sofa note, so do check that out. I think we'll now jump into some poetry with Samantha Henderson. For the past few years, Samantha Henderson's short fiction and poetry has appeared all over the place Clark's World, Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Fantasy Magazine, and Lone Star Stories. She's actually lived in England, South Africa, Illinois, Oregon, California. Apparently she loves corgis. There you go. The poem is narrated by Annette Bowman. Do pop over to Annette's site. I'll put a link on the front of the website. She has a great little site there for anything SF related. It's well worth visiting. So Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present.
0: Unexpected by Samantha Henderson. This poem first appeared in Starline in the September October issue of 2005. We expected, since to avoid contamination the temporal sensors were only programmed to vibrate the subject's living flesh, we expected clothing to remain, and possibly the hair. We did not expect fingernails, eyelashes, and the entire epidermis coiled neatly on the floor of the transfer chamber and rimmed with frost. Hamilton, at the last minute, might have realized too late, just at the flash of transfer. We heard him start a little, heard a broken squeak. Unsuitable for a man with twenty-seven PhDs and a mail-order doctor of divinity. Just for fun. We wondered how long, five feet, seven inches of well-conditioned, highly educated, raw flesh could survive a Jurassic night. We hoped that it was quick. He did not expect
3: it there we go i think we'll move on now to flash fiction comes from mike allen and mike allen if most can you ring the bells mike allen had the button pain story up for the nebula award this year and starship so far is oral delight so was very proud to play that story and this story is also narrated by mike got a great he's got a great intense kind of deep voice there which i think's yeah, that's one thing with me with kind of narrating stories. It's nice to, you, when you discover like a, a nice narrator. Oh, it's, it hits a sweet spot in my life. Mike also runs is editor of Mythic Delirium, and they've actually celebrated their tenth anniversary of publishing best offbeat and electric poetry. And they've got this kind of landmark poem come from Neil Gaiman. <laughs> I was, I was biting at the heels. Can Starship Sofa have that, Mike? Tony, Tony, not just not just yet, not just. Well <laughs> I don't give up. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like a little on there. Mike emailed Neil Gaiman and I'm getting a go ahead. So, Mike. What can I say? Thank you so much. You know, Sorry for the, the pestering, but it. <laughs> I'll help out any way I can. I'll certainly push Mythic Delirium to so everyone. Please pop over and see my site, Mythic Delirium. Drop Mike an email and say thank you for letting Starships over play the Neil Gaiman poem when it comes over. That'll be fantastic. So this is a little bit of flash fiction. It is called An Invitation via Email, which was published in issue 350 of Weird Tales. So the Starship Sofa and her Oral Delight is very proud to present.
4: An invitation via email by Mike Allen. From Giles Milko at va.fairly.edu to Miranda Statzler at va.fairly.edu Subject. Excellent piece in The Critic. Hello, Ms. Statzler. Giles Milko here. Hopefully you remember me from the conversation we had last Thursday at the After Hours faculty party. I have to say, I really enjoyed your essay in the newest Fairleigh critic on the subjective nature of fear. I'm very much in agreement with your contention that the most extreme phobia or paranoia, no matter how crippling, "'can be overcome through the gradual building up of confidence. "'I must say that aside from being informative, "'I found your piece also to be quite entertaining, "'especially the self-deprecating wit you used "'in describing your efforts through therapy "'to overcome your fear of spiders. "'In my head I could hear the mental squeals of horror "'as Dr. Cheryl placed the tarantula in your hand,' Then feel the overwhelming burst of triumph as you set the spider gently on the table and realized, I did it. I did it. Some of the asides in your article made me realize, Gods, I can be so dense sometimes that when you spoke of concerns about, quote, arcane rites, unquote, in response to the invite to my Halloween party the next evening, that you possibly weren't kidding, and perhaps had some genuine anxieties. I really should stress that my wife and I planned for the Halloween party to be occult-free, no spirits other than the liquid sort." I realize I've gained a facetious reputation among students over the years, usually for little more than addressing poor Guardino Bruno's attempt to understand the world through sorcery in a history-of-science class. I must say, though, Bruno did have a knack for concocting ominous-looking magical symbols. It's no wonder the church made kindling out of him. Obviously, some such rumor reached you long before our first encounter in the flesh. So as soon as I finished your essay, I felt compelled to write you and set things to right. The thaumaturgical ceremonies conducted in my home are not fearful black-robed affairs reserved for special nights. They're actually very casual things, held Sunday mornings or the occasional Saturday if someone wants to see a football game instead. They're not geared toward any more sinister purpose than furthering the careers of the participants. I, for one, need the boost. Consider that I teach nine credits a week, write a column for the town paper, and complete a new book every two years. Do you really think I could do all that without outside help? A few faculty members take part, as well as one freelance writer from town who needs to combat his day-job brain drain. Sometimes writers or artists from out of town make guest appearances. It's all quite open and friendly. No one dresses up. T-shirts and sweats, in fact, are perfectly acceptable attire. Of course, there has to be a sacrifice. Our ideal choice is one of those horribly misguided individuals, sadly almost always apparent, who goes to the school board wanting to ban this book or that book, or goes whining to town council to cancel Halloween as a satanic holiday. Unfortunately for the world, but good for us, there seems to be no shortage of them, although we've done our best, I swear. And if we can't get our hands on an adult, one of their children will do the trick. Those sorts of genes don't need to spread. The sacrifice doesn't need to be conscious, but he or she does need to be alive so that each of us can take a small bite of their still-beating heart. Making the proper cuts to remove a heart this way is frankly rather tricky, though we've all gotten well-practiced. Of course, we have to pass a chalice around. A coffee cup will do, really, for that token chaser of blood. Then we summon the, outer-dimensional persona, unquote, That's the politically correct term these entities seem to prefer nowadays. Now, at this point, you might experience some of that anxiety you discussed in your essay, but there's no need to worry. We've drawn the right symbols and circles so that the persona, our favorite is a fellow with a pleasantly dry wit named Mephisto, can't do anything other than talk. Once we see his... its... gender's never clear with these things disembodied head hovering over the remains of the sacrifice, we pepper him with questions about the status of his labors with regard to our projects. In the ears of which editors or agents has he whispered? What bargains has he struck? Did he give an appropriate nightmare to the woman who wrote that rude rejection? Etc. After we get our update, he heads back to New York. Really, that's it. He? It? takes most of the sacrifice for sustenance until next weekend. We knock on my study door so my wife knows we're done, and she'll usually bring in something like sweet rolls and hot chocolate, so we dig into those while we sit around talking shop. What's left over of the sacrifice we give to the new puppies, who love their weekend meal. It's usually cooked a bit as a result of the persona's presence, Of course, the cat doesn't want to be left out, but her teeth have gone bad, so she just gets a little saucer of blood. You're probably wondering why the authorities have never barged in on us. Well, as a condition of this arrangement, Mephisto, or whichever persona we happen to dial up, erases the memory of the sacrifice from the minds of everyone who ever knew them, except for us. So if no one remembers their existence, no one misses them and we've managed to improve the gene pool a tad in the process. Of course, if there's a lot of physical evidence left behind, like, say, wedding albums or newspaper articles, the entity will have to work a bit harder to make sure everyone's curiosity is sufficiently dulled. But overall, it's a very efficient system. I'm not sure how close the lot of us have gotten to achieving our ultimate goals, but these weekend get-togethers do seem to help. You're certainly welcome to come by this weekend, or any weekend of your choosing, there's no hurry, and join in. Perhaps we could help you to produce more wonderful essays like the one I just read, or maybe there are some solidly grounded fears, I hear rumors of a troublesome ex-husband, that we could help put to rest for good. I hope all of this helps to reassure you, your obedient servant, Milko. From Giles Milko at va.fairly.edu to science faculty at fairly.edu English faculty at fairly.edu Legati at morbid.net Subject Apology To all, my sincerest apologies. Miss Statzler seemed like an intelligent, inquisitive woman who would understand the benefits of our arrangement. How could I have predicted she would interpret my explanatory email as a joke? I promise to be more careful in screening new members henceforth. I'm still not precisely a master of this new email system, so if you receive this message in error and have not a clue to whom I'm referring, well... Just take comfort that things are exactly as they should be. All best, Milko. Smiley face. Don't forget,
3: copyright is Mr. Mike Allens. And a big thank you to Mike. And a big thank you to Weird Tales for allowing Starship Sova to play that story. Next up is our good friend Mr. Rod Barnett with his film talk. Rod, what have you got
2: for her? Hello, everybody. I doubt I'm alone when I confess to loving bizarre science fiction stories of lost worlds, sunken continents, and entire civilizations somehow gone missing. There's a bit of the unsolved mysteries freak in most science fiction fans, and I have a hard time resisting those what-if scenarios. I can remember when I was a kid being fascinated by real-life mysteries like the lost colony of Roanoke, Virginia, as well as fictional missing continents such as Atlantis or Lemuria. Any kind of hidden society cut off from the rest of the world and the things that happen to such a place is fertile ground for good tales and bad ones. Some of my favorite can never be called the least bit plausible, but that is far from my primary requirement for sci-fi. Entertain me, I say. If you do that, I can forgive many faults. And if you do it well, I'll come back for more time after time. Such a case is tonight's subject, The Mole People, a little black-and-white film from 1956. It is completely insane, but I love it. I'm not saying it's good, but, uh, well, anyway. The Mole People starts with an amusing four-and-a-half-minute talk from college English professor Dr. Frank C. Baxter, a real guy, in which he ruminates about various crackpot hollow-earth theories. This mini-lecture on some of the sillier ideas postulated about our planet is an indicator that this movie is not to be taken seriously. I get my first chuckle of many when Dr. Baxter states that if we think about this film's implications, it has much to say to us in the 20th century. Seriously, the mole people has next to nothing of serious import to say. Do you, me, or anybody else in the entire 20th or 21st century? I'd like to think this odd prelude was slapped onto the beginning of the film, as a wink to the audience, but honestly it was probably done to pad out the running time. It clocks in at a brisk 75 minutes, so this hysterical blather helped it to reach feature length. The actual story of the film begins with archaeologist Dr. Roger Bentley, played by 1950s science fiction film stalwart John Agar, who is uh, working on a dig somewhere in Asia. Now that's as specific as the film gets he and his team find a tablet fragment with indications of Sumerian origins. After a small earthquake, they're shown an unearthed ancient oil lamp found at the base of a local mountain. Convinced of the possibility of a major find, Bentley and Dr. Judd Bellaman, played by Hugh Beaumont, who you might recognize from Leave It to Beaver, mount an expedition to the mountain's summit. After much stock footage of people climbing mountains, They reach a high plateau scattered with crumbling Sumerian buildings. When a member of the team falls into a deep crevasse, the men descend into the mountain and make the archaeological discovery of the century. A living Sumerian settlement, cut off from the world for thousands of years. Amazingly, the inhabitants have survived through the ages and maintained their culture and history. Most of the population has become albino, with extremely pale skin and a high sensitivity to bright light, while some have devolved into hideous, mole-like humanoid creatures. These mole men are used as slave labor by the albinos and are treated pretty horribly by their masters. Using his still-functioning flashlight, our man John Agar convinces the rulers that he's a messenger from one of their gods and starts romancing one of the rare Sumerian throwbacks, i.e. a normal-looking person, a slave girl named Adad. Adad is a stunner with surprisingly fine makeup skills and a great hairstylist somewhere off-screen, who takes to the manly John Agar immediately. Good Dr. Bentley has the idea that he can affect positive change in these primitive people by keeping up the lie about being a divine messenger. But the Sumerian's high priest, played by Alan Napier, who you might remember from the 1960s Batman TV series, begins to suspect that uh, the newcomers aren't what they claim to be after the eldest of the team dies. After all, messengers from gods are immortal, right? Wishing to retain the power he has over the king, the high priest has the two remaining archaeologists drugged and thrown into the city's execution chamber. But as this is being done, the devolved mole men rebel at last, allowing the two scientists to make good their escape with a dod in tow. This film is silly, cheesy fun from start to finish. The mole people never resembles anything close to reality. When our heroes encounter the Sumerians, there's a very quick nod to Agar's ability to speak the very dead language, but then all the other members of the party suddenly can as well. The Mole Men are treated as beasts and constantly beaten, but never use their digging ability to escape their cruel masters, and of course, isn't Agar lucky to run across that incredibly rare normal girl to romance and rescue? But with all the crazed fun this film offers, it is Agar's character that gives this film its entertaining highlights. Arrogant almost to the point of annoyance, Bentley is so forward in the first third of the movie that it felt like he'd be the villain of the story. A pushy, arrogant ass, he really seems to be the guy most likely to get a harsh comeuppance until the final third when he slides jarringly into hero mode. I love the fact that the Sumerians' mistaken assumption of divine powers mesh so well with Bentley's character. It didn't take much for him to start acting like a deity. I'm surprised his swelled head didn't give off a radiance all its own. Adding to the strangeness on display is some of the dumbest dialogue of any film of the period, with Agar once again getting the line share. That he was able to utter lines like, In archaeology, all things are possible, with a straight face, shows real acting skill. I love that someone asked an actor to say, quote, The thing that impresses me the most is the complete and utter silence. You can almost hear it. Unquote. I live for this kind of wackiness, folks. It doesn't get any better than dialogue like that. Or worse, really, kind of depending on your point of view. Anyway, anyway. In the right frame of mind, The Mole People is a complete blast. And while never actually good, it still stands as a great example of the qualities fans love about 50s cheesy science fiction movies. It is very well produced, with all the right elements to make it a fun Saturday afternoon matinee. I love this film the way you love a not-too-bright pet that might chew up your shoes, but is simply too cute to strangle. They don't make them like this anymore. And, uh, maybe that's a good thing.
3: There you go, Rod. What can I say? It just gets better and better, Squire. Keep them coming. Just on a kind of side issue, I went to see with my good son and his friend, we went to see the Terminator Salvation, and, uh, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it was good as escapism, do you know, and it was, uh, but there were so many, like, you know, and Reed come out, loved it, you know, as soon as we we got out of the house, you know, got out of the cinema, you know, like, you know, he brought his plastic guns with him, do you know what I mean, so they were kind of, the car was, there was me, Reed, and Sam, Reed's friend, and we got back in the car, and, you know, they, they brought, in anticipation of coming out of the film, the plastic guns, so we did the usual you know driving down the street shooting everyone possible you know the kind of terminator noises which was fun but there was so many kind of you know like unnecessary kind of little you know where the kind of overdo but oh, that's what gets me annoyed that's in films where you know there's like a, a voice over the film as if we don't know what's going on so the, the the kind of movie directors or movie people think we need to be told do you know what I mean so there's like a a kind of a voice goes over, and right at the end, do you know, there's this one where it says, "We'll not be able to make it. The fuel. We'll have to land. You know, not near our base or something." And I was like, I "Just land the bloody helicopter!" <laughs> and it was there's loads of them. Do you know? It was oh, and Jeremy over at the sofa notes. You know, Jeremy had been excited, and I said, "I'm going to say the going to say that. Yes, yes." And hmm, I got that kind of a hmm. You know, so I was like, oh. Not as good as Star Trek, I must admit. Shocking to be quite honest, but you know what I mean? It had big guns and that's what Reed liked. So there you go, that was my little review of Salvation Terminator Salvation. Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. The leading provider in spoken word entertainment, Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to sofa for your free audiobook. My recommendation for today's Audible book is Austin Scott Card's Enders Game. Getting away from the man and his politics, Enders Game is just a kind of stunning book, and it's just brought to life by Audible and their uh, kind of collaboration with Stefan Rudnicki and Hall Nelson as narrators. It is a fine book. It's how I actually came to Enders Game, it was through the Audible one. That's how I listened to it first, or read it first, you know. It comes in, Audible's got this kind of enhanced format now, like a stereo format, and it's like a sound and excellent. You know, I'll play a little bit of it here. Just to give you a heads up, this isn't the kind of enhanced version, the one you're going to listen to now, but this is just the normal version, but you certainly can get it in the enhanced version.
5: Suddenly, a pain stabbed through him like a needle from his neck to his groin. Ender felt his back spasm, and his body arched violently backward. His head struck the bed. He could feel his legs thrashing, and his hands were clenching each other, wringing each other so tightly that they arched. Dee shouted the doctor. I need you. The nurse ran in, gasped. Got to relax these muscles. Get it to me, now. What are you waiting for? Something changed hands. Ender could not see. He lurched to one side and fell off the examining table. Catch him, cried the nurse. Just hold him steady. You you hold him, doctor. He's too strong for me. Not the whole thing. You'll stop his heart. Ender felt a needle enter his back just above the neck of his shirt. It burned. But wherever in him the fire spread, his muscles gradually unclenched. Now he could cry for the fear and pain of it. "'Are you all right, Andrew?' the nurse asked. Andrew could not remember how to speak. They lifted him onto the table. They checked his pulse, did other things. He did not understand it all. The doctor was trembling. His voice shook as he spoke. They leave these things and the kids for three years. What did they expect? We could have switched him off. Do you realize that? We could have unplugged his brain for all time. "'When does the drug wear off?' asked the nurse." Keep him here for at least an hour, watch him. If he doesn't start talking in 15 minutes, call me. Could have unplugged him forever.
3: If that doesn't whet your appetite for good science fiction, well, I don't know what will. So go on, pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. book. <laughs> Let's get into the main fiction, and it comes from our good friend, Mr. Jeff Carlson. And we're actually going to try and get Jeff on the sofa note show as well, because Jeff, like a million miles an hour, you know, hyper, hyper, hyper. So that would be great to get Jeff on, do you know what I mean? So do, I'll, give a, I'll give a mention on the show when, when we'll finally seal the deal. But I'll give you a little heads up for Jeff Carlson, just if anyone out there does not know. And I think, actually, Jeff Carlson now is kind of the new Michael Crichton. Think of him like that. That's the way I kind of think of Jeff now. I'll give you a little heads up for Mr. Jeff Carlson. He is the international best-selling author of Plague Year and Plague War, which was the finalist for the 2008 Philip K. Dick Award. The third book in that trilogy is Plague Zone, which will be out in November. His short fiction has appeared in venues such as, as Mosh Science Fiction, Writers of the Future 23 and Fast Forward 2 Anthology, which was actually also a finalist for the 2008 Philip K. Dick Award. That's correct. Jeff was in twice up for that award. Still didn't get it, Jeff. <laughs> How many times do you want to go? And he's also mentioned if you could pop over to his website, he's got this kind of awareness and book trailers there. Free excerpts from his stories and everything. It is a good little site there. And it is www.jverse.com. That's dot com. Again, there will be a link on the site. But do pop over to Jeff's site. And it's got the craziest title I've ever seen. So the Starship over, and Her Oral Delights is very proud to present. Good fight at the Sugarloaf Pet Food and Taxidermy. Bye. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought
1: we'd bring our prices so, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
2: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at MintMobile.com/slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
5: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Jeff Carlson.
6: Fortunately, there was always one more moron coming down the road. Otherwise, Julie would have had to find a real job or move again. But she loved it here in Big Sky Country, as they bragged on their license plates, the high rolling plains, the slow winters, and sweet, pungent summers. There was room to think. Trolling for hotheads, drunks, and fools wasn't exactly big money, yet Julie enjoyed every minute of it. First, there was the waiting, tucked away in the brush with her remote controls and a thermos of tea, letting her mind roam or whispering on the radio until some joker passed by in his gun racked truck always a hymn, usually tossing out Coors cans and cigarette butts. Cigarettes! In many ways, the people here were a century behind the rest of the nation, and proud of it. The little man in the sports car was a surprise. As he sped around the turn, his headlights flashed over the silhouettes of Julie's deer standing in the meadow. Of course, her beautiful beasties didn't run, Then his brake lights flared and he stepped out wearing a nice jacket, no hat, no lonesome country band thumping on an old cassette deck. Julie had come north to escape labels and stereotypes and recognized the irony of her thoughts. She wanted to be a better person, but the fact of the matter was that her victims tended toward a demographic particularly easy to reduce to cartoons, single-syllable name, beer gut, filthy pants. Shorty here did not fit the bill. Julie didn't think he was even driving an American car, given the low shape of it. Maybe an Audi. He looked like a suave TV villain there at the edge of his headlights, trim and spare, and barely five foot five. When he pulled the compact Uzi submachine gun, Julie's headset distinctly said, Oh, no. Julie froze. Her left thumb jammed down in a button, "'her right hand still pulling on a joystick. "'In the meadow, the doe's tail twitched and twitched and twitched "'while the buck's head reared back so far "'that its antlers gouged its own spine. "'Any local would have jumped back in his truck. "'Shorty opened fire on full auto. "'Both deer burst apart into flecks of real hide, "'white cotton stuffing and metal gears. yee ha! he screamed. "'Already lying prone,' Julie squashed her breasts so flat that they migrated into her armpits as the distinct snap of a bullet went overhead. High Song had let her choose the location and set up tonight, and her first priority was always to hunker down out of the line of fire, way out. Some of the drunkards would make superb material for anti-NRA commercials, blasting away like they were General Custer combating the Sioux Nation. "'Shorty quit only when the buck's head winged away "'and its savaged body remained standing. "'He lowered his Uzi and gawked. "'Typically, the next stage of the game went smoothly. "'This wasn't West Miami. "'The great white poacher knew he'd been tricked, "'and humiliation doused his adrenaline. "'High Song would crash out of the woods in a monster SUV, "'lights flashing, loudspeaker booming. "'The men, about to be ticketed, were often indignant.' And enough California retirees had invaded the land that now the words entrapment and lawyer came on a regular basis. Yet only twice had Julie seen somebody wave a rifle threateningly. Never had anyone actually taken aim. But they weren't packing machine guns. A high song? Julie whispered into the radio. She snuck a hand under her belly to see if she'd peed herself. His voice was a groan. What, what are you going to do we what are we going to do? I don't know. Shorty had finally twigged that a deer, like every other living thing, requires a head to stay on its feet. He cut glances left and right as he scuttled back to his car. It's a huge bust. Don't let him go now that she knew she was okay. Julie got mad. She didn't think of herself as sentimental but Bongo the Buck out there had survived almost two dozen arrests and 28 gun wounds, three arrows, and one rock. No more. Neither poor Bongo or the Doe, still too new to have a name, would ever do a job again. Julie also felt a leaping tickle of excitement. This was way beyond the usual combination of trespassing and hunting out of season at $238 a pop. This was the big time. She hissed. You smash out onto the road like always, and I'll back you. Shut up and stay down. Ha Song. If you move, I'll shoot you myself. Julie fumbled for her binoculars and jotted down most of the license plate before the little man roared off. He was headed straight into Sugarloaf. Being the only black woman around for at least three states, as she liked to say, Julie Beauchen would have been notorious even if she wasn't a mad scientist. That made it easy to get dates, but she still freaked when total strangers addressed her as Ms. Boo Kane or Boy Shane. Julie did not prefer the hostile anonymity of urban life. It was just that her first 36 years of existence hadn't done much to teach her that human beings could be polite and neighborly and honest. Yes, this region was favored by white supremacists and had been the last refuge of the Unabomber, but in a head-to-head collision, Florida's battalions of drug lords, smugglers, militants, pimps, and psychos would barely break a sweat kicking butt on Montana's worst. She liked the mountains. She still laughed at the way so-called cities ended, fading into open country, unlike the gargantuan concrete sprawl of Miami-Dade. The police here let you out of a speeding ticket with five bucks paid on the spot, even for doing 110 on the ruler straight highways. And you could forget to lock your car and still find your stash of five dollar bills behind the sun visor. High Song drove back into town sedately, not at all interested in catching up to the man with the machine gun. Julie squirmed on the bench seat of the four by four suburban as the radio bled static. Finally, the voice of Sheriff Tom came in answer, mumbling, "'Haven't seen him, Shane. "'He was headed right at you.'" "'Well, I'm looking up and down Main Street right now.'" Tom Young had never been enthusiastic about fish, wildlife, and parks, stationing a new unit locally, viewing them as competition instead of allies, and a few months ago he'd grown openly difficult. The silly pecker had gotten himself nabbed for hunting out of season, twice on the same day. Julie felt certain that the sheriff's second shooting had been vindictive. Men would let pride get the best of their intelligence every time, as if deer could somehow mock them. Her small experiment in social conditioning was a total failure in that regard, since her decoys must be bitterly cursed across the state. Everyone knew and yet each four-hour sting still averaged at least one bust. Some guys were simply too full of testosterone to pass up a target. She tried to keep her voice calm, glancing at Song for approval. "'Sheriff, there's only a few side roads between here and town. Why don't we each take a couple?' As usual, the sheriff didn't answer immediately. Then... "'Sounds like a goose chase to me, Beauchene,' There's a lot more turnoffs than that. You just don't know the area. Neither does this guy. He's not local. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that license plate. Sheriff! Hyesong patted her knee and Julie let herself be distracted, looking down from the dark road ahead to her leg. Lately, her weekday partner had grown chummy. Not in a brotherly way, she hoped. His hands were giant and scarred, and always nimble with equipment, colored like cinnamon to her chocolate, and Julie had memorized an excessive poetic list of the places and ways she wanted to be touched. She scooched away from Haisong on the long, bed-sized seat, tucking her own small hands into her lap where they couldn't do anything embarrassing. Out, the sheriff mumbled against her crotch, and she slammed the square microphone back in its cradle. Hi Song might have smiled. Julie opened her mouth, but then shut it, angry with herself for being flustered. When the two of them were lying out there in the cool, empty night, murmuring into each other's ear, she imagined her curves against his angles. She imagined being married 20 years. She and Hi Song never babbled, but they shared the obvious passions for wildlife, for hiking, for camping out. He was surprisingly obsessed with global politics and always asked about new developments in her work, and it was only on the drive's back or sitting face-to-face of a burgers and pie in Noisy Mother's Tavern that they couldn't find any words. Somehow that made her crush all the sweeter and as irritating as hell. Even romance was different up here on the plains. Back at her shop... Unloading the remains of her deer in a cloud of cotton fiber, Julie sneezed directly into Song's face. Oh, jeez, I'm sorry. He mopped at his cheek, unflappable as always. I needed a shower anyway. Sorry, really. How about some coffee or something? I'll show you my new mini. That was not innuendo. Over their five months working together, Julie had grown terrified of spooking him, because of High Song was indeed courting her. It was in some infinitely patient Indian way. She tried to be all business. This is a hundred times better than the decoys, really. I took some of those little lawn gnomes. Julie, it's late, he said. Next time, okay? But he wiped at his face again as he stepped away. She was too upset to stay home. Still, she knew better than go hunting an oozy toting maniac by herself. She drove out to Shog Nurseries as the moon rose. Their stings were typically set up on private land owned by Drew Shogg, partly because it was a challenge to find more than a foot or two that Shog didn't own for miles in any direction, mostly because he didn't appreciate trigger-happy cowboys running around the same woods as his grandchildren. Julie couldn't wait to hear his thoughts on assault weaponry. Shog was employer, landlord, or both to most of the local population, and no doubt he'd put a boot in Sheriff Tom's lazy backside. From the highway, the lights of the nursery resembled a miniature city. She passed four gates before turning in, but Florida millionaires would have laughed at the shog residence. It was a plain ranch home within shouting distance of a sprawl of employee cabins, and the land in between was crowded with partially disassembled tractors. Headlights rolled out to Interceptor. "'Hey there, boy Shane!' Bob LaChapelle was Shogg's foreman and quite the charmer. His pickup truck was bigger than her pickup truck. Julie seemed to own the only small-sized Nissan ever sold in the state of Montana, and LaChapelle smiled down from the window of his giant Dodge Ram as they jawed like two riders out on the range. "'Mr. Shogg's buying seedlings in Europe,' he said. "'Want me to pass on a message?' "'Um, I guess not, thanks.' She had already swung her truck around when she noticed an odd pattern of reflections in the dark window of Shogg's house. Looking back, she repressed the impulse to hit her brakes and then barely avoided steering into a ditch. A car was easing down the Jeep trail behind the garage with its headlights off, but its waxed hood glinted in the new light of the moon as it rocked back and forth. Shorty's Sports Car Julie drove much further down the highway than she wanted. The open road felt like a stage, and she had to go more than a mile before a rocky knoll concealed her. She made a U-turn, switched off her lights, and then cruised back again, wondering how she'd stop without touching her brakes. She supposed she should have bashed out the taillights. Her truck was personal property rather than an FWNP unit, so no radio. High Song never answered when he was off duty anyway. Typically, he let his machine get the phone, too why? What was so important he couldn't be interrupted? She'd been to his trailer six times and had scrutinized the long living room and the kitchen, especially for a sign of a woman's presence. But his home, so much like his face, was just too damn uncomplicated. Julie let off the gas before she reached the north gate and turned in. Too fast. She yelped as her truck jolted through a pocket of mud, then yanked on the emergency brake. Finally, she stopped. Her head thrummed with adrenaline. She made too much noise rummaging through the mountain of boxes and bags in the truck bed and stopped getting enough oxygen to think before she found what she wanted. That was okay. It was easier just to be muscle and a pair of eyes. Most of the employee huts were dark. One seemed packed with people, talking too loud, laughing. She came across Shorty's car in the shadows behind a row of greenhouses its hood ticking as it cooled. He'd actually kicked in his taillights, and Julie smiled to think of him cursing his way over the hills and through the woods. Someone who lived here must have shown him that back route. La Chapelle? He might have been standing guard, waiting for Shorty. But why? What were they doing? Julie blundered around the garage in time to be pinned by a slash of light spilling from the door of a double-wide trailer. Bond. James Bond. Two men stepped inside, one small, one regular. Good thing they didn't glance back. She must have been a heck of a sight, mincing along on tiptoe with her arms wrapped around the decapitated long-necked heads of a doe and a trumpeter swan. She wedged herself into the muddy shadows under the trailer, beneath the living room window, and forced herself to work slowly. She was using new gear for the first time and wanted this field test to be a success. She raised the swan first, bumping the trailer's wall with its beak as she thrust its face up to the glass. King Pinhead, you're smoking it yourself. Man, why don't you just relax? Julie triple-checked the tape recorder she'd spliced into the wires falling from the swan's neck. Then she grinned. A swan's eyes were too small to be replaced with cameras that she could afford, so she'd plugged in high-gain microphones instead. Look at you. That was Chappelle. Look at your face, all squinty and bloodshot. You know CTHC is addictive, right? Just testing the product. Shorty's voice was slower and deeper than she would have guessed. Maybe because smoke had made his throat raw. Marijuana. THC was the drug in marijuana. Her brother had sucked it down the same way Mom soaked herself in rum and coke. Shorty said... You want to do business or what, man? Do you? You almost got all of us shafted tonight playing canic cowboy. This just got better and better. Shorty was Canadian. Were they smuggling across the border? How much pot could you stuff into a sports car? It would make more sense just to grow it here, all these greenhouses, horticulture experts... Julie performed quick surgery on the doe's wiring while she pinned the base of the swan's neck between the trailer wall and the back of her head. Then every muscle in her neck seized up and she leaned away, clumsily grabbing the swan before it hit the ground. If La Chapelle looked out now, he'd think she was putting on a puppet show. The doe had night-vision camera eyes, of course, which she'd spliced into a watchman recorder. Staring at the tiny screen in her lap, Julie lifted both animals again and zeroed in on the faint outlines behind the drapes. Even carrying a gun like that? Want to try it? Let's have a toke and go blow the tits off some stuff, buddy. You should see, we're not buddies, La Chapelle said quietly. We're business partners, and I think our other partners would be very, very unhappy to hear you're taking chances and testing the product, you idiot. CTHC is addictive. C-T-H-C. Canadian? Camouflaged? Cocaine? Caca Julie was too revved up to play Wheel of Fortune. A bad ache knotted her shoulders again, and she twisted her butt around in the dirt, trying to find a comfortable pose. It couldn't be done. Shorty had what must be a briefcase and laid out several small items on the table, the first hot enough to show on infrared, a nifty little incubator. But La Chapelle gave him no money as far as she could tell, only paperwork, and Shorty muttered his way through a few lines. The select crossbreeding resulting in the concentrated THC has proved independent of the plus nitrogen fertilizer. He laughed. (laughs) You guys really think you're rocket scientists or something. Just bring it back to the lab, all right? concentrated THC. They were retooling the plant to sink its teeth into people like tobacco or heroin. Could Mr. Shogg know about this? He didn't need more money, that was for sure, and it didn't fit with his protectiveness of his family. La Chapelle and some cronies were probably looking to cash in on the side. Julie wondered why they were using a lab across the border, but it must be tough to find people with the right training, especially out in the middle of nowhere busting an international biotech drug ring. She was going to be absolutely buried in venture capital money, and she couldn't wait to see the look on Sheriff Tom's face when the grumpy old boob realized she was his best friend in the world. She was going to have to let him in on the glory. Despite its fabulous name, the Sugarloaf Pet Food and Taxidermy was merely a three-room cabin set beside a warehouse in a dirt lot graced with two trees and a sagging fence. By rights, the place should have been named something more along the lines of Beauchene Security, but Julie hadn't thought it prudent yet to draw that sort of attention. In any case, it was Song who'd christened her shop, with mischief in his often unreadable dark eyes and Julie had blown a 140 bucks getting a sign made in the hope that he might feel a possessive twinge each time he picked her up. She did not sell pet supplies. song was a tease. He found it amusing that she had six bird feeders and threw snacks to every mutt in town, yet packed her warehouse with armies of dead beasts. Most of it was FW&P work, of course, although she did perform some regular taxidermy since it was decent money and also generated goodwill among the townies she'd busted. Tonight her cabin seemed stuffy, too small. It had been one wild ride of a day, a new day now. It was twenty minutes after midnight, but things had ended well. Sheriff Tom had goggled at her recordings and actually stammered, "'Thanks!' He said he'd go straight to the nursery as soon as the state police arrived. He also warned her that she stood some chance of trouble herself, having no authority, no warrant. But Julie pulled her tapes out of his hands and told him to say he'd received an anonymous tip. Big deal! The man really was dense sometimes. Heading home, she'd considered a drive out to Song's place with a six-pack to celebrate. But what if he wasn't alone? She was putting water on for tea when twin lights flashed across her window, then again. She leaned over the hot stove to peek out. Speeding into her lot was a sports car, the sports car, followed by the sheriff's hard-top jeep. "'God, no,' Julie said. "'Too late, it all made sense. "'Idiot! "'How else could La Chapelle have known that Shorty machine-gunned her decoys?' Now she had maybe 12 seconds before they got inside and used three, grabbing her phone and punching 911. Then she wasted two more, realizing that calling the cops might not be the best idea. What if all six members of the Sugarloaf Sheriff's Unit were in on the deal? The slam of car doors felt like malfunctions in her heart, and Julie forgot to think again as gunfire blew through her front door, right over her head. Originally, she'd drawn up the killer lawn gnomes as a gag. In Florida, however, people crammed their yards with shiny plastic flamingos and miniature windmills and such. She'd realized there would be a paying market, and a trio of elves stood on her coffee table because she thought she might lure Song inside for a little show-and-tell. Julie drove back behind her kitchen counter as Shorty kicked through the door. He goggled down at the weird greeting party he discovered inside then snorted and started to kick at them. The first elf misfired, its jaunty green cap rocketing off to the left. The second either aimed or launched poorly. Its taser leads bit into the sofa with a flash of white electricity at least twenty inches off target. The third elf rammed its juice home directly over Shorty's heart. His chest seemed to explode into ashes. Julie screamed, expected buckets of blood, An instant later, though, her cabin was saturated in tasty blue smoke. He must have been carrying a personal stash in his pocket. He toppled like Goliath onto the ceramic elves. Coughing and wheezing, Julie rose from her hiding place and ran for the back door. Her feet felt huge, weightless, like soft balloons pushing her skyward. She was looking down at them when her face encountered the door and when her butt met the linoleum. "'Oh, jeez, I'm totally snockered,' she realized, "'and sat there owlishly counting her own thoughts. "'The sound of two gunshots slapped her like her mother's palm. "'She pushed herself upright, "'but the small, neat holes in the door stopped her again. "'Just missed. "'When she looked around, her vision seemed dim. "'They were shadows thrashing toward her in great swimming motions, "'and everyone was yelling.' Suddenly, she was outside, wrapped in fog banks of smoke. Then she could see again. The stars glittered and the chill air felt exquisite on her neck. She made sense of the fact that she was wearing only floppy socks and knew she couldn't run all the way back to Florida. She sprinted toward her warehouse instead. God damn, God damn, God damn, Sheriff Tom chanted behind her. She slammed the door on his anger and dropped to her hands and knees, sensing bullets like she had radar. Her consciousness felt huge and sensitive and vulnerable, as if every hair on her head had been squeezed full of brains like toothpaste. She rolled right, then popped up beside a work table as the door crashed open with a resounding metal gong. The vibration felt so intense that her fingers wouldn't close on the master remote she wanted, Groping for it, through the jumble of tools and wiring, she cut herself on a band saw, and that raw hurt was the promise of death. But La Chapelle wasn't handling the smoke well either. He went completely bug nuts, shooting away from her. Shooting her pets! The black bear's only moving parts were its neck and one foreleg, yet even positioned on all fours, it was nearly as tall as a man, a hulk of claws and teeth, Shotgun blasts echoed through the warehouse. Then she activated the rest of her toys, and Sheriff Tom also opened fire, shrieking in fear. Julie had not invented the robo-decoys. That honor went to a Wisconsin taxidermist. She had, however, made improvements as word got round and poachers grew wary. The migratory elk were capable of walking stiffly and waddled forward in a slow-motion stampede, bumping and bonking each other. Julie realized with surprising passion that she had to take them to Hollywood. Here's the pitch. Live-action Bambi crossed with Night of the Living Dead. They formed a shaggy wall of muscle from which Sheriff Tom and La Chapelle would only blast meaningless fist-sized hunks. High in the rafters, a mass of shadows flopped and twitched. She'd run out of working space in autumn when gun lovers were permitted to kill beautiful fuzzy things and her decoys had to be put away. And in winter, fish, wildlife, and parks focused more on maintaining habitats than on trapping the few hunters enthusiastic enough to brave the elements. Her birds nested on sheets of plywood laid across the open rafters, and her turkeys and sage-grouse could all walk. The lone bald eagle and platoon of ring-necked pheasants could all open both wings. They carried the immobile owls, cranes, and swans to the edge. It was biblical, a rain of fowl. Most of the palsied horde crashed down upon the elk or her work tables, but enough hit their targets that Sheriff Tom vanished from sight, and La Chapelle was driven to his knees, hacking on old dry feathers. He put one last shot into the ceiling as Julie charged in for the coup de grace, high-stepping through the flapping mess. She brained La Chapelle with a duck and kicked him four times for good measure, then drove her bruised knee into Sheriff Tom's belly when she was bumped from behind by an elk, still diligently marching its way forward. The paramedic kept pressing his thumb down on the skin beneath Julie's eyes, checking her pupil response to see if she was concussed. She had repeatedly lost track of what she was saying, fascinated by the blizzard of red and blue lights. The confusion of emergency vehicles and personnel seemed roughly equal to the congestion inside her stoned brain. Look up, the paramedic kept saying. Can you look up? Let's go over it again, the state trooper said. They followed you into the warehouse? Right. Julie tried to point and nearly fell over. She'd squeezed three industrial-sized tubes of epoxy over the pile of robofowl binding La Chapelle and Sheriff Tom into a surreal cake of beaks and bodies that would have to be taken apart with a power sander, no doubt painfully. As for Shorty, she had simply hit him with the taser again because she was unable to tie him up, having unfortunately glued her right hand to her own hip. She gestured with her chin instead and saw High Song among the milling uniforms. His head was also turning, searching, and Julie's first impulse was to hide. She was very aware of her own sour adrenaline breath and lumpy afro, but with the sudden clarity of the smoke, Julie understood that this might be her best and only chance. He spotted her as soon as she started toward him, shuffling. Then his eyebrows went up. Did she look even worse than she thought? Julie was confrontational. So what was so important you couldn't even come in for a cup of coffee earlier? He hesitated, then grinned and shrugged, an expansive motion that was unlike him. Leftover tacos and a two-volume biography of Eisenhower, he said. What? I just didn't think we should rush things. Julie stepped closer, and Haisong brought his open arms in, enfolding her. When she kissed him, he kissed back.
3: There you go. What can I say? Jeff, fantastic story. I thank you so much for letting that. Like I say, I'm trying to get Jeff on the Sophenaut show. That'll be amazing. Don't get copyright is Mr. Jeff Carlson. Got some more stories by Jeff. And if he's got any more out there, Jeff, send them over. Starship I would love to play them. So that's it. All delights. Show number eighty-eight. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly have. So in the week that wasn't for Sophanauts Live. Please do consider coming over there and you know subscribing to that show and saying hello and you know listening to these heated debates. We've got some great guests coming up. Paul de Filippo is going to be on there as well. I know Mary Robinette Kowal is going to be in a couple of weeks' time as well. So that's it. Another one in the bag, so to speak. I hope you enjoyed it. Do take care, and I'll see you over at Sofa Notes or next week on Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. Until then, just like to say. Good night from me.
5: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed?
2: Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement?
4: Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of... silver. Sofa, a procedure is shared.